Well, join me this morning in your Bible in John chapter 6. You know, this is sort of a subtle thing, but if you ever go to a church and people aren't carrying a Bible in to church, that's a sign that you don't need a Bible because probably the Bible's not being preached. Not the truth of the Word of God. So it's good that you bring a Bible with you because that's what we refer to. That's our authority. It's our final authority of faith and practice. If the Bible says something, then that settles it. We believe it. And sometimes there are hard things. The Scripture shows us some of our own faults and problems. And, you know, that's a spiritual book. Sometimes it may be hard to understand. But for the most part, we can understand if we just read it. Well, this morning we're in John chapter 6, starting in verse 35. John 6.35 And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and am that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which he hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. For no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard him, hath heard, and hath learned of the Father, cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness, and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof, and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. We'll not read the rest of that passage. It's somewhat lengthy. And we've got more of these uh, metaphors to to deal with. So when Jesus fed the 5,000, he went across the Sea of Galilee, stilled the storm, and now we come upon this passage where it's making reference back to the feeding of the 5,000, and it also makes reference to the manna back in the Old Testament. So there's something to be said, but here in the Gospel of John, there are seven statements. They're called I am statements. Now that 
It's not how we talk today, I would guess, but he said, I am, the Greek word is ego I me. It's, it's I am the eternal one. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, but it was translated into the Greek. It's called the Septuagint. When they translated the burning bush experience, Moses said, who shall I say sent me? He said, I am hath sent you. That same phrase, ego I me, same that we read right here. That it's a reference to the eternal God. The eternal God. Jesus is laying claim to being the eternal God. And it's quite clear. And he uses seven specific metaphors to help explain it. The first one is, I am the bread of life. Now, if you've been a Christian very long, you know there is a significance to the number seven. Now, I'm not sure I understand all the significance of it, but it's pretty clear over 400 times that uh, references made to sevens in some way. There were seven days of, of the creation. There were six days of creation. He rested the seventh. So there were seven days of creation. There were seven days, he said, till the flood comes. When he sent out the dove, he waited seven days. And then again, seven days. So we see it several times there. Joseph's dream, he saw seven years of famine followed by seven years of good. On the seventh day, Joshua walked around, marched around the city of Jericho. On the seventh day, seven times, till they shouted and the walls came down. Elisha revealed there would be seven years of famine. In the New Testament, there is a Matthew chapter 13, seven parables that are kingdom parables that are given. We go to Revelation, there are seven churches of Asia Minor. The tribulation period is seven years long, and it's opened up seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven vials. I don't think that's accident or coincidence. There is a purpose behind it, but it shows that our God is a God of order. It shows that our God is in control. That is a number that we see Again, probably around 400 times throughout the Bible. So the, the, the significance of these seven I am statements is, again, a strong reference reminding us that we have a God of order and purpose. And each one of them, through the metaphor, I am the bread of life, and so on, explains something about God and who He is and His nature. As we go through the Gospel of John... It is unique to the four Gospels. There are things in the Gospel of John not found in the other three. There are things in the first three synoptic Gospels not found in the Gospel of John. Primarily, the Gospel of John use, uses the, uh, the opportunity to explain Jesus is God. And it, its purpose is to show that He is deity. In John 20, 31, it said, These things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and believing you might have life through His name. So there's a very specific purpose, and that purpose is being uh, explained by these seven I Am statements. So the eternal God is saying something to these people that have gathered around Him after they saw the feet of the 5,000, 
And after the disciples saw him walk on the water, calm the storm, now he's saying, I am the bread of life. He's trying to make a point to his followers. And we know as we read this particular discourse, the people, according to Jesus, were following because they wanted prosperity. They wanted food. They were going to make him king by force. They thought, this is great. Here's a king. He'll give us everything we want. But the contrast is, Jesus is saying, you missed it. The point is, you should be living for spiritual things. It's a spiritual food. Moses filled your belly for 40 years. Daily, the, the manna came down from heaven. But I'll provide for your spiritual need, your spiritual prosperity every day while you're here on this earth. And so they, the idea is there is a spiritual prosperity. In, first, in John, the first chapter, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now, if you remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, here was some young man that decided he was going to go find life. You know, what is, what is life? When, when do you find life? Well, you have food and shelter and clothing and fancy things, I suppose. That, so he went out to find all these things, and he lost them all. And that's the way it is, that people looking for life look in all the wrong places. They don't look to the Word of God. They don't look to God Himself. They keep looking for satisfaction out here in the world. You know, they have advertisements for, uh, they have all this party and beautiful people, and they're drinking, and, but they don't show you that people on the highway have been killed by drunk drivers. You know, they, they're looking for life, and they think they're going to find it, and they don't tell you about the illnesses and cirrhosis of the liver and all the other problems that go along with it. They, they're looking for life, but they're looking the wrong place. But when you go to the Word of God and you go to, uh, to Christ for salvation, you find real life. Amen. The Bible says, the Son shall set you free, ye shall be free indeed. Amen. You want life, you find it in Christ. He is the source of life. Amen. So the contrast of the prodigal son, he goes out looking for it, and he said, I'm going to find life, I'm going to live it up, and he loses it all, and he's found in a pig pen. Oddly, he comes back to his father, and what happens? They said, well, give him a, a robe to wear, put shoes on his feet, kill the fatted calf, put a ring on his finger. All the things he sought out in the world, he didn't find, but when he came back to his father, he found them. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's a hard thing for someone to understand. That you try and live it your way and do your thing and find happiness your own way and you don't find it. And you give up everything. You say, I don't care about these physical things. I'm going to follow God and live for Him. And He provides all those things for you. Amen. And it's just the way it works. That's hard to understand. And I know people, are, they're afraid. Oh, if I become a Christian, I'm, I have to take a vow of poverty. No, no, you find the, the richest in the world. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He'll provide every need. We have the bread of life. The bread is a, 
a similarity or a contrast, we might say, really, to the manna that came down from heaven. Some ways it was similar, that was provided every day. Uh, it was for everybody. Whoever would chose could go get it. And so it is with Christ every day. He's there. He'll provide your need every single day. The Bible says in John 1, 11, it says he came to his own and his own received him not. Some chose not to believe. It's kind of hard to imagine that the, the leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the council, that so many of them, when you get to the, toward the end of the Gospel of John, they literally sought to kill him. Not only did they not believe him, but they sought to do him harm. And these were religious leaders. There, there are people that uh, are exposed to the gospel and yet reject it. And you wonder, how could you do that? How can you reject the word of God? It's the truth. By the way, this week, this is a side note. The, this week I looked up, trying to find a definition for science. We're hearing a lot about follow the science, are we not? Okay. Well, when you look up the word, it is varied a little bit. There are different definitions for it. But basically, it's the study of something. And when people study something and they test things, they examine things, you come up with their conclusions. But a person with a Ph.D. doesn't mean that he follows science. Because what it should be, though it's not always, it should be truth. What is truth? What is real? What is accurate? But when you use the word science, it's not necessarily used that way. It's just, here's what someone with a PhD has studied. And here's their opinion. It's not necessarily proven. And you hear so often the words theory. Well, they have this theory. A theory is not proven. It's just somebody's ideas. What really matters is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We'll get to that eventually this morning. Truth is what matters. So there are people that study behavior, social science, uh, physical science. I mean, they, they, they study biology. They study all those things. But real truth is when it's accurate. Real truth is when it's true. So it's not always used in that terminology of truth. It's just, here's what somebody studied. Here's their findings. They may be limited. They may be flawed. That's their sign. It was flawed when people tried to get all the, the, the bad blood out of George Washington and did some bloodletting, and he died from it. That was bad science. It was not true. And so we have to be careful that to realize when it's in the Bible, it's true. You can count on it. I don't care what anybody else says. It's true. It is the Word of God. It does not change. The Gospel of John then makes these seven statements. Each one of them are saying, I'm the eternal God. And it begins with, I am the bread of life. As we think of that bread, the bread provides, physically bread provides sustenance. Now, if you're on a diet, I realize it could be fattening if you eat too much bread. But I like bread. I, I mean, it's good. When I grew up, my mother made these yeast rolls. You know, they were round, sort of like that. 
put in the oven, they come out, they're hot, put a little bit of butter on them, sometimes some honey on it. It's good. <laughs> and it's good for you. Now, if all you did is eat bread, you know, you'd be a, a fat, happy person. <laughs> but bread's good. And it's a sign of nourishment. There's something good uh, about having bread. That it's a basis of sustenance. In the wilderness for 40 years, that's what kept them alive. And now Jesus is saying, I'm the bread that will keep you spiritually alive every day. And if all you go after is the physical bread, you miss the most important part. These people had the idea, Jesus performed this miracle. Imagine what he could do if he were king. Why then we'd have bread, we'd have vegetables, we'd have meat, we would have uh, clothing, prosperity. I mean, he could do anything. That's the kind of king we want. And he basically points out to them, you missed it. There is a spiritual food. The, the manna was a type, it was a picture of the fact that God can provide for you. That you need to seek Him and put Him first. So don't be like the prodigal son going out finding life by human means, by all your own ability or through the flesh, but seek Him first. Put God first. And if you put Him first, He'll take care of everything else. He is that bread, the bread of life. All right, join me in chapter 8. We'll move right along through the Gospel of John. Chapter 8 and verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true, for I know whence I came and whither I go. But ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that beareth witness of myself, and the Father sent me, beareth witness of me. They understood he was talking about himself being God and having that relationship with God. He said, I am the light of the world. Yet, it comes right before he heals the blind man that cannot see. He gives light. He gives perception. He gives understanding. I don't know how you felt, but I, I think most people, if not all people, feel this way. The very moment you get saved, immediately after you get saved, it's like, I see it. And you just couldn't get it before. You, you missed it. You couldn't see it. It's different. It's like, I get it. Wow, I'm going my own way. I was lost. Jesus saved me. Now life has a new perspective. Amen. You watch the West Street out here and you see the cars going back and forth. And you start thinking, do they, know, do they know where they're headed? Do they know they're lost, headed to hell? Do they know that? You have a whole new perspective. Why? Because the light came on. Amen. We measure light by lumens. We have so many lumens. The more there are, the brighter it is. It's, it's a word we use, illuminate. 
And then you turn the light on, you illuminate, it's like I see it. He's the light of the world, he brings light. And that light shines out to the rest of the world. Amen. There are people all around that we, we are the opportunity to give them the light. You know, you don't hide it under a bushel, but you put it on a, uh, uh, on a hill. And everybody can see it. That's what light does. It repels darkness. He said, I am that light. So it's all related to Jesus Christ. We're to be that light. We're one congregation. We're to be a light to our community. And we're, we could probably do better. We're doing the best we can. When we first came to Connecticut, we're, you know, I'm putting together a book for uh, these articles I've been writing on church planning. And I pulled out some old pictures. And you know, I put in a couple of old pictures in there. And I think, wow, forgot about that. Forgot about those people. I mean, that, that was a long time ago. I just showed Gil, his dad and mom, in one of the pictures. Uh, wow, the Andersons, April and uh, Jerry, that, the first service. And I think, wow, that's something. But I would go all, all over town. I never saw a person I knew. Never met anybody I knew. I've traveled different places. I'd never seen anybody I knew. I'd go to the hospital and didn't know anybody. I mean, other than the people that started coming to church, I didn't know anybody. Now, wherever I go, I see people I know. I've got to be careful. I don't want to put preacher on my license plate because I'm afraid somebody's going to see <laughs> I'm speeding. They say, that's the preacher. You see how fast he was going? I was at the transfer station. Indiana, we called it the dump, but they call it a transfer station in New England. It's more sophisticated. But the transfer station, that's, hey, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. You know, it's like you know everybody there at the transfer station. They're my kind of people. I like <laughs> people that go to the transfer station. I mean, you, you, you know, you make some impact if you let your light shine. You let people know. You give them the gospel and you meet people who have been saved. Oh yeah, I was saved at your church a long time ago. It's frequently somebody in the bus ministry comes back and they say, oh, I was visiting someone. They said, they know you. And I said, I don't know who you're talking about, but they probably do. One day my wife and I were going to say, you know, we don't want to see anybody we know. Let's go somewhere and we go to Bristol to a restaurant. We knew the person that met us there. I thought, oh, that's just one person, but... As we walked by, there's Kenny and Claire were sitting in a booth over there. <laughs> and then somebody came over and said, a whole table, like people from the Christian school. We knew over half the people in the restaurant. But you think, if you didn't go, if you didn't give the gospel, none of that would be true. He is the light. We want to let that light shine. We want to let others know. They may not agree. They may not get saved. But it is our responsibility to let others know. He is the Savior. He is the truth. He is the light of the world. And He is the light for the whole world. Not just the world, the whole world. Making the emphasis that everybody can see that light. Everyone can be saved. But the world loves darkness. You notice the amount of crime goes up at night. A lot of things happen that are bad at night. Whenever you read the news, something took place at 2 o'clock in the morning. Somebody had a terrible accident, wrapped the car around a tree. 2 o'clock in the morning, what are they doing? They were driving home from the bar. 
A lot of bad things happen in the dark. People feel like they'll buy with it. Nobody sees them. But when the light shines, people see things clearly. It sheds light. And sometimes you need a lot of light. You know, as you get older, it's a little harder to see without a lot of light. You have to turn the light on. Kids can see. You know, they don't need the light on. But you, when you turn the light on, you start seeing dust and dirt. You thought, I thought that was clean, and it's not clean. Because you turn the light on, now you can see it. You know, you look in the mirror, make sure you get the light on. Get yourself prepared so you don't scare anybody. So you need to turn the light. The light shines on our lives to see our shortcomings. You know, we all have our weaknesses, our faults, pride, you know, things that maybe nobody else knows, God knows. And when the light shines on us, it reveals what we need to change. How we need to get things right with him. He said, I am the light of the world. He makes that clear. Well, chapter 10. Verse 7. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am. Same ego I me. Same Greek words. I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the Sheep did not hear them. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The idea of a sheepfold was not necessarily with a gate. There would be a stone wall usually, and it'll be in a circular or a fashion, or it could be a square fashion. We have one area where there's an opening. And a shepherd would be the one to stay there and make sure the sheep stayed inside that fold. And when anything may come to steal the sheep, a fox, a wolf, a coyote, or whatever it might have been, or a lion, they can't get in except going through that door. So the shepherd stands between them and danger. But he lets them in to a place of safety. So the sheep are safe. There's only one place of safety and it's found in Jesus Christ. He is the door. He is the only one that can allow us access to heaven. He says, I'm the door to the sheep. So it protects from intruders and it uh, allows entrance and, and exit is needed. So they can leave the fold when it's time to go out and eat. But there's no entrance without Christ. In Matthew 7, he said, enter in at the straight gate. So there's a narrow way. Anybody can go through it. It's not difficult, but it is narrow. Few there be that go in there at. Broad's a way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in there at. Years ago, they started something called the moral majority, giving the emphasis that there were more saved people than lost people in the United States. We just need to speak up. But the truth's always been true Bible-believing Christians a minority. And we might say an overwhelming minority, especially those that are dedicated serving the Lord. Because it's a narrow gate. There's only one way. It's not many ways. Explaining the way of salvation, a preacher was describing to someone that Jesus is the only way. And they said, 
Well, I look at, at Christianity like going to the post office. You know, one person comes from over here and that side of town, he goes to the post office and somebody else comes from over here and they go to the post office. And a preacher rep- replied, we're not going to the post office, we're talking about heaven. Right. There's only one way and that's through Jesus Christ. There are not many ways, it's not everybody's opinion. It is the infallible word of God that makes it clear. It's one way through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go on to chapter 11. Whoop, I missed, I am the good shepherd, I, which we did read, but it talks about his great love for the sheep. So he's the door, and it goes on to say he's the good shepherd. But it shows his love for the sheep, his care, care for the sheep. Right. No one loves us more than he does. Right. No one wants our lives to benefit and be blessed than he does. No one wants our, uh, our best than what he does. He cares for the sheep. Now, there are people who are leaders. They care about prominence, moving ahead, gaining control. His overwhelming purpose was to care for the sheep. And he was willing to die for the sheep. I think there are some Christian men that would say, I would give my life for any one of my family. I think there are men that would do that. I'd be willing to do that. Some would be willing to say, I would die for my country, for the freedom and liberty that we enjoy. I would be willing to do that. But Jesus Christ was willing to give his life for the whole world that we might be saved. He cares for every one of us. I don't care how unlovely and unkind you might be. You may be a skeptic and hate God. You could raise your fist in defiance against him and he still loves you. He cares for the sheep. And those that are saved and love the Lord, we see His constant care in our lives. In verse 27 of chapter 10, He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. What a beautiful statement that is. He knows every one of us throughout all the world. He knows us, and His sheep follow Him. We just, we follow because we love Him, because He first loved us. Now in John chapter 11, verse 25. So he just raised Lazarus from the dead. And Martha said, I, verse 24, I know he'll rise again the resurrection at the last day, because Jesus said he'll rise again. Verse 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yes, shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? So Jesus comes and sees him, and then we know he raises him from the dead. He said, Lazarus arise. He came forth, grave clothes and all. But that was not what his statement was about. He raised him in physical life, but that was an example to show them, I can give you eternal life. There will be a resurrection. It's interesting, even going through the Old Testament, to read there are those that believe someday will be raised again. There'll be a, a, a better day. Abraham was willing to take his own son's life knowing that there would be a resurrection that God could raise him up again. We see that throughout Scripture, that there, 
is that hope for every one of us today. Someday, those that are in the grave will be raised again to be with the Lord. Those that are alive and remain will be caught up together. So there's a rapture of the church. But if the Lord doesn't come before we die, someday that body will be raised to new life again. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's an interesting verse in Isaiah 26, 19. It says, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead bodies shall they rise. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no resurrection. He is the one that gives life. But in a sense, even at the the time you're saved, you're raised to new life. You're born of God, you have a new life. So that old man's to die, the new man made alive in Christ. So he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14. John chapter 14. Verse 5, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way. Ego I me. I am the eternal God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Three words are used. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Psalm 119, 160 says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Jesus alone is the source of life. There is only one way to eternal life, only one way to live. That is through Christ. The way, the only way, no other way. And those that don't believe it, someday every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is the way, the truth. There is no truth unless it is the truth of the Word of God. It is always true. Now there are observations we make that, yeah, that be true. But there are many things in life where people say it's true, it's not true. No such thing ever takes place in the Word of God. Every word, every jot, every tittle, it is all true. It is the Word of God. Now, if somebody said, well, I can prove. There's all kinds of errors in the Bible. You just ask them, show me. Right. And they usually haven't read the Bible enough to even know where that would be. They're just repeating something the devil spoke in their ear. Yeah, I mean, they, they can deny it all they want, but for centuries there has been no clear proof that the Bible is in error whatsoever. And if there were, believe me, we'd know about it. The devil would see to it. Now, it's the Word of God. It is God's holy Word. It is true. So is the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, John 15. And Jesus said, I'm the, the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. A husbandman's a farmer. He's the caretaker. Every branch of me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches." 
He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. I wonder what that word means, nothing. You can look that up on Wikipedia when you get home. What does the word nothing mean? Good for nothing. That's what it is. That's what, we, that's what he got when he got us. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. When I read all of it, it's a great passage, but we notice you bear fruit, you bear more fruit, you bear much fruit. But it's a very simple illustration. Take a vine or a tree, there have to be branches of it. That's where the fruit is. But we cannot bear fruit unless we are connected entirely through Him. I've, I've thought about this several times and I thought, does God bless a church or a ministry because of one man, a preacher, or... And I know God uses people. But when you go through Scripture, more than anything, you see, it was all God's doing. It wasn't really a man, it was God. Now think about it for a second. Joshua walks around the Jericho for seven days, seventh day, seven times, and the walls fell down. Now does Joshua say, yeah, guys, I, I had this all figured out. I knew what I was doing all along. I don't think so. It was God that did it. Do you think Gideon thought, yeah, I can do anything? No, he was hiding behind the wine press. God said, I'm going to use it. I really believe that God's purpose supersedes any ability an individual might have. And the truth is, we just have to get involved with what God's doing. We'll just do what God says to do. Again, I was looking at some of those pictures in the early days, the first service, first anniversary, and I was looking for somebody that actually had a job. I couldn't find anyone that actually had a job. We were poor, I'll tell you. We were a couple people maybe eventually had a job. But, it, but I thought, we were just doing what God told us to do. It wasn't because of me or my wife. or It was just, we're doing what God's end. I mean, you know, when the, you look at the waves coming in off the ocean. Now, if you decide, I'm going to surf, but I'm not going to use the waves. I'll, no, you just get on the wave and ride the wave. I think it's a great illustration. that You just get involved in what God's doing, God blesses it. You start handing out tracts, it's amazing how God uses it. You start doing what God said, living, living for God, and you see how God blesses that. Rearing children and raising a family. If you just do it God's way, you see, I'm just trying to do what God said to do. God blesses that. In every aspect of our lives, we have to realize that it is God who does it. He is the source of everything. And without Him, we can do nothing. And you sever yourself from the vine and you think, I can do this, I can handle this. You can do nothing. So it's a great thing just to get involved in what God's doing. You know, to teach a Sunday school class, to be on a bus route, handing out tracts, people sending out these booklets, and uh, just doing what you know God blesses. And when you do what God blesses, you see that we're tapped into a place of fruit. 
That's how you bear fruit. How, how many have a garden this summer? Are your tomatoes really small this year like mine? I'm having a lot of troubles. My tomatoes are tiny compared to what they normally are. But if you look at your garden, you, you, you just cut the branch off of any kind of fruit, cucumber or, you know, if, if, you, if you just had a straight vine and no branches, you have no fruit. You, you, you cut it off and it's just laying there, it's dead, so it's gone. You have to have that source. He's our source. And all that we do, we have to learn to trust him, believe in him. Reading the Bible, prayer, faithful in church, trying to live by him. Allowing the Holy Spirit to control us. That's our source of strength. That's how we bear much fruit. Not because we're capable. Not because of who we are. But because he wants us to bear fruit. If we'll just be a tool he can use. Let's bow for prayer this morning.